Faith. Faith. Uh, I've heard the wonderful privilege of just listening to uh, Pastor Phil's message and just a great message on the story of Joseph. Amen. And as I've been listening to that, I've just, I've just begun to study this subject of faith. And I realize that faith is such a vast subject. Do you all agree? It's a, it's a massive subject. It's the basis of our walk with God. Everything that we are and everything that we pursue. And the reason we're here is because of the faith that we have in God. Amen. So I began to fall in love with this subject as I began to dig deeper and really try to understand. Because I think sometimes as children of God, it's easy to, um, to focus on the spiritual aspects of things. But faith demands things that are slightly different to what we're used to. The wonderful encounter that we had earlier on, when faith comes in, it requires us to do something slightly different. Amen. So I realized that to really grasp faith and the subject that it entails, we need to be studious. So we need to study the word effectively. So I began to look in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I bumped into a, 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 you know, a popular uh, chapter in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 11. I'm not going to go through it into it right now. But as I began to look into it, I realized that there are some prime examples of faith some wonderful examples of faith that are mentioned in there. But there's one thing in common that I found between all of them is that they're all in the Old Testament. They're all wonderful stories. They're stories of faith. And I, and I started to wonder, why is it that when we speak of faith, we think of Abraham, the father of faith? And then it dawned on me that, okay, fair enough. I think the reason being, because faith is a journey. Do you agree? Faith is a journey. Someone's faithfulness is measured over time. Faith is measured over time. And if I can highly encourage you, if faith is such an interesting old school subject that to really study very well, it's easier to take notes. So if you're taking notes, God bless you. Well done. Because I've had to take a lot of notes. So I'm going to do a, a long introduction before I talk about what I'm really going to talk about today. Just because we need to really cover this basis of faith. Amen. Amen. Now, I realize another thing. That faith works in principles. As in there are different aspects of faith. So faith can be broken down into different segments. There is hope. Or belief. There is action, and then there is completion. Hope. Faith is a substance of things, the evidence of things. When it comes to action, faith without action is dead. Faith without works is dead. And then there's completion. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. Amen. Now, faith in any context matures over time. Amen. Faith is like a mustard seed. It starts tiny. 
but it grows. So when you look at the story of Abraham, we can see why he's called the father of faith. As we look at his story, we can see his journey and his belief in God. Amen. Amen. And as I began to look at it even more closely, I realized that God has a tendency of graduating your faith. God has a tendency of growing your faith as you walk with him. Amen? So last week we looked at the story of Joseph. Joseph first had his own dreams. And then he began to share his dreams with his family members. And then we know the story uh, that our pastor shared with us very well. Eventually he got arrested and was in prison. And he began to interpret dreams of others that were in prison. That's exercising the skill and the gifting that God had given him. And before long, he was interpreting dreams of kings. Faith matures over time. Amen? Yeah. Another thing I realized is that faith takes practice. Faith is never in a rush. Faith is patient. I hope I'm not giving you too much to write. <laughs> Faith is patient, but it also knows not to procrastinate. Because it's two different things, right? There's a difference between being patient and procrastinating. So in this context, I would define patience as waiting and knowing that God's got this. I'm going to wait on what I'm supposed to do because I know God is saying I should wait. So I won't do this right now because God is saying I should wait. I won't be pressured by what's happening around me because God says I should wait. God says it's not time yet. God says it's time to gather my strength. And then procrastination is delaying action at the command that God has given. So God will speak and he says, okay, do this. Now time to move on. Uh, it could be get a job. It could be write a book. It could be start a business. God has spoken. It's either we choose to be patient or we choose to procrastinate. Faith knows the difference. Amen. Amen. Furthermore, faith demands productivity. Hence the phrase, take a leap of faith. So faith demands action. You need faith to jump on to the next level. Otherwise, you don't move, right? Um, that's why unfaithfulness kills productivity in any aspect, in any subject. Unfaithfulness kills progress. Do you agree? Could be in a marriage, could be in a family setting, it could be in a job. And faithfulness just kills progress. It takes you back. Yeah. But thank God that we serve a God who is faithful. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen. Amen. But I'm not done yet. Faithful people are successful. And healthy. Because they know how to discern seasons. 
Amen. Amen. They are very successful and healthy. They know when it's time to wait. But most importantly, they know when to take action. Because faith without works, again, is dead. So I'll give you this long introduction um, with one thing in mind, just to build on from what we learned last week, but also to introduce you to the story of Nehemiah. If we can just turn to the uh, book of Nehemiah. How many of us have studied this book? Yeah? It's a wonderful book, isn't it? Full of... It's a, it's a wonderful story, I feel, you know, when, when, when Pastor asked me to share this and to share on faith. It's one um, story that God said, okay, I want you to share this. And I, and, I, and I began to really look at it and think, oh, when you think of faith, there are many people in the Bible that are mentioned in the book of Hebrews 11. Okay, there's Cain and Abel. There's Abraham, there's Sarah. There's many people that you can study that came uh, before this. But I found it interesting, and I realized why. Um, now, just like any other story um, in the Bible that, uh, that pertains faith, it's a vast book. Um, you know, I think I would need more than one session to cover all of it. But for the sake of the session that I have right now with you, I'm not going to take too much of your time, so we're just going to break it down to different passages, and I'm just going to walk through the first six chapters of, uh, of the book of Nehemiah. Hallelujah. Are we all there? We're not going to read it just yet. I'm just going to give you just a, just a background, just an overview, and then we'll just walk through each chapter and see what God is really saying and how Nehemiah was able to make a difference in Jerusalem because of the faith that he had. So we're focusing on one aspect of faith today, which is action. Amen. Now, Nehemiah was a gifted leader. He had a good job. He was a cupbearer for the king and the Persian government. And the king at that time was uh, Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. Now, his gift was different to that of Joseph, right? Joseph was a dreamer. Joseph interpreted dreams. So God was able to use his gifting to really just put him in a position where he can make a difference in Egypt and all across the world. Amen. So Joseph did that very, very well. Now, Nehemiah's gifting was different. This guy was a leader. This guy could put people together. To be able to work next to the king as a cupbearer, you had certain responsibilities. You had to be very good in, you know, organizing the king's schedule, just planning for the king, and just making sure that people that are coming in are coming in at the time they say they're coming in. Those that are meant to leave, they would leave. Time was important. Planning was important. Organization was important. Amen. So what we find in this book is that he gave up his job. So I'm just giving you a wonderful overview. Then we're just going to walk through the chapters and then we'll, 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 um, we'll just conclude. Now he gave up his wealthy job uh, and his position that he had and he went back to his homeland in Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. That was his main focus. So that's, that's the end goal that we'll look at. The end goal was the rebuilding of the wall. In between, between the point of uh, him finding out about the broken down walls which had been broken for 70 years, he faced a lot of struggles. So that was, there's a there's a, a wonderful way and a procedure that he took, the action that he took from being in the king's palace to hearing about the news about the wall to him actually taking action 
He faced a lot of challenges along the way. We're just going to look at that briefly. Amen? Now, um, one more thing just before we look at it. One thing to also bear in mind, if you can just put that down for you. Nehemiah wasn't the first to take a group of people back to Jerusalem for this task. It was the third person. There was Zerubbabel before him. Then there was uh, Ezra. And then there was him. Amen? So that's one thing to bear in mind. Now let's turn to our chapter 1. Uh, I'm just going to read a few, a few verses there in Nehemiah uh, chapter 1. Just to, um, just to show you how this strong man of God got to, um, to take on this journey. Now I'm just going to read the first um, four verses, okay? The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Now, the first thing that we see that he's writing this in first person, so he was the one writing this. Okay, he wrote this, and this was him going through this wonderful journey, okay? Now, verse 3 says, They say to me, those who survived exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. <laughs> Prayer and repentance. I'm not going to go through every single verse, but if you do get time, please go through the book um, as you find time. But what we see from verse 5 onwards, he begins to pray. He has this great burden. He can't understand why this wall has been broken for 70 years and no one has actually succeeded in doing anything about it. And he says, right, I'm going to pray. But I like what it did, because it did something very prophetic. Okay, let me just um, read uh, the next three verses so you can quite understand the prayer that he said. He said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear, and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. I love that. That's something very prophetic. Repenting upon the sins of his fathers and his forefathers. Because he understood that without such a prayer and repentance of their sins, it was going to be difficult. Going ahead. So you had to deal with that. First of all, pray, fast, seek God, and repent. Amen. Isn't that awesome? He didn't just cry and moan about the troubles that were happening in Jerusalem and didn't do nothing about it. But he started with a mission and he had a plan already. Awesome. Let's look at chapter 2. Um, I'm just going to read the first three verses. So we're following the journey of this man, right? 
Is everyone else following? Yes. Awesome. In the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Action plan. Action plan. He understood he had to start by where he was. As a cupbearer to the king, he realized he was in a wonderful position to start something, to start a revival, to start a move, to take the first step. He was in a great position. And I strongly believe that all of us, in our own respects, are in a great position to make a difference. Do we believe that? All of us are in a position to make a difference, one way or another. And it's easy to think, okay, I can wait until I finish my degree. I can wait until I have kids. Those who have degrees and those who have kids will tell you otherwise. <laughs> They'll tell you, start now. So he goes to the king and he says, he pours his heart out and says, look, back home things are not together. Back home in Malawi there's a flood. Back home in Zimbabwe things are upside down. But I believe I can make a difference. I think there's something that I can do. So he put all his resources together of knowledge, wisdom, experience, and organization to say, okay, something should be done about this. Amen. Wow. Interestingly, I remember a few years ago, um, we had Ben, Ben Courier. We all know Ben. There was a season where Ben just turned up with his guitar and he started playing his guitar for a wonderful season. And playing a guitar became very fashionable. <laughs> I think almost everyone began to learn to play one. And I was quite interested. I even bought one myself. <laughs> you know, I never thought of playing a guitar, but it was so fashionable at that time, I bought one. Because Ben was playing it so well, you know. He was just doing a great job. He would just play any key. He had never been to school, but he just took his time and studied how to play a guitar. So one day I went up to him, and I was quite curious. I said, Ben, what made you pick up your guitar? Why a guitar? And he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, because I saw a need. And I thought, wow, a need. And that speaks to me to this day. There is a need somewhere. There is a need somewhere for you to fill in the space. There is far much more instrumentals that we can play upon the stage. Far much more things that we can do in the body of Christ. What is the need that you are seeing? What is the need that burns in your heart? Whether it's money, you're saying, oh, we need, we need a lot of money in our church. Well, bring it. <laughs> bring it. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it, we could do with it. Whether it's children or the youth, or it's evangelism up there, we could do with people. What is that desire that's burning within you? 
For if you really took action and really went down the route of actually providing the need that's burning within you, you can make a difference. I can make a difference. I can make a difference. Can that be a confession today? You say, I can make a difference. I can make a difference. Amen. Starting by where he was as a cupbearer to the king, he decided to make a difference. Now let's look at uh, verse 17 in chapter 2. So now he begins to lead the people. Then I say to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. So he begins to gather his people, right? Interestingly, I just want us to bear something in mind that we'll cover later on in the chapters. Let's look at... Um, Verse 19, because this is something that's very, very common when we start to embark on the journey that God has set us to. And it shows up quite earlier on when it's just beginning to gather people. I'll read verse 19 for you. It says, But when Sun Balat and Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, official of Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? So already there are some telltale signs. This is quite typical. We saw that the same thing happened in Joseph. He began to say his dreams and what God was showing him. But that causes a bit of backlash, doesn't it? It causes a bit of jealousy, a bit of friction. They began to fight him earlier on. Amen. Yeah. Let's look at chapter 3. Now I'm not going to read much of chapter 3 because this is really when things begin to happen. Okay, so we're halfway through our message today. Amen. Yeah. Are we still on board? Yes. Are we following? Yes. Amen. So this is, this is faith. This is the study of faith. We have to study it. It's different. I hope no, none of you are sleeping or getting bored. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Now, Chapter 3, just going to read the first, um, the first two verses. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the tower of the hundred which they dedicated, and as far as the tower of Hananel. The man in Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imre, built next to them. So this, really, chapter 3 is just an account of what started to happen and the different groups that are gathered together to build different segments of the wall. So it was a massive wall. Yeah. A massive wall, I mean, a wall in those days um, was very, very important. I mean, the wall was a symbol. Well, I think even to this day, walls are quite important. The Americans are trying to build one. <laughs> But woes symbolized strength. It was a symbol of... <laughs> I didn't say that. 
walls were a symbol of strength, keeping the enemy out. Okay? You know, it really defined uh, the city of York has some great walls around it. The enemy couldn't really just budge in. Or, you know, sometimes they would set them so high upon the hills so the arrows couldn't go over. But they were very, 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 very important. So they started building this wall in chapter 3. Now, let's look at chapter 4. Walking through the journey of Nehemiah. Amen. Opposition to the rebuilding of the wall. I'll read the first three verses. When Sanballat, we heard about this guy earlier, when heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from the, those heaps of rubble? Burned as they are. Wow. More opposition. More opposition. More opposition. When these guys started to walk in the journey of faith that God had sent them to, in a journey of faith that he was embarking, opposition isn't shy of such people. Demons start to manifest. Demons start to manifest. I'll read verse 3 and 4. It says, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back to their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So this was Nehemiah's prayer. This guy was resilient. Awesome, isn't it? And from what I've seen over this story now, resilience is also something that grows, a strength that grows from within you as you embark on the journey of faith. Because you get tested along the way and you build resilience. People that never really embark on the journey of faith are not quite resilient. So someone will come and say, ha, why are you building that wall? They'll throw stones at you. You say, okay, I give up. But when you've been through the journey of faith before and you've walked through a similar road before, when you see challenges coming your way, it doesn't really phase you. It doesn't really phase you. I remember when I, uh, when God started speaking to me about, you know, embarking on the journey of business, you know. It was a terrifying thing. Terrifying thing. I was absolutely just, I was shaking. Because it obviously came a point where God spoke and says, okay, embark, go down the journey. But when I really started to try it, and I'd never done it before, I'd never started a Facebook page with my business name on it or an Instagram page, it was terrifying. I remember walking down the park one day, you know, and just saying, come on, do it, do it, right, do it. I was scared. I'd never done it before, you know. I know it might sound, I'm not sure if any of you have walked down that journey before, but I know most of you probably have. But when you're embarking into something new that you've never done it before, it's absolutely terrifying. But I'd like to say that after I conquered my first business, 
and the first little project that I started, the second time I started doing it, it was slightly easier. And I grew by the third one that I started. And the fourth one, I'm even better and much more confident that I can actually do this. For it is God that has given me the strength. So you become more and more resilient to challenges as you grow and embark on the journey of faith. So you see some people start some massive projects and you wonder how does someone start the project and build a massive store and build 100 stores. Uh, I already have a target of how many stores per year that they're building. <laughs> Builds up over time. Unless you start something small from where you are, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And I was asking Amy this week and I was saying, how come, why is it that people that write their first book tend to write their second book? Am I right, Pastor Debbie? No. <laughs> Once you write your first book, writing your first book is terrifying. I'm actually thinking of writing one myself. But I'm scared. I'm admitting that in front of you. Terrified. But I've seen it happen, right? But most importantly, I understand that unless I write the first one, the second one will never happen. You have to start somewhere. So I'm really encouraged. I'm not sure if, if Pastor Debbie has told me this before, but I know she's writing a second book. She has to be. Because she's grown from the first one, the experiences that she experienced during the first one. So it's easier to write a second one. And it will sell more copies and influence more people and reach a wider audience while you're still thinking of writing yours. Start now. Amen. Amen. We're just about to finish. I will learn from Nehemiah. Awesome. Now, uh, let's look at chapter 5. We're only studying six chapters of Nehemiah. It's a fast trek. It's a crash course in the book of Nehemiah. <laughs> now, chapter 5 is very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. Just going to read the first four verses for you. Maybe five, actually. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are, not we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during famine. Still others were saying, we have, we've, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax. Does it sound familiar to the days we're still in? on our fields and vineyards, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. This is all happening around Nehemiah. Isn't that interesting? They're starting to gather around him and they're crying to him now. I wonder why. Let's look at verse 9. And he writes this in first person again. He says, so I continued. So he confronts them now. Because some, some of the Jews were making slaves of the other Jews. And taking advantage of this labor force that was happening. And really just profiteering and just making money from this whole thing. And he says, so I continued, what you are doing is not right. He confronts him. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid 
the reproach of our gentle enemies, and I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. So give it to them back. Stop it. What you're doing is not right. And here's what they say in verse 12. We will give it back, they say. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Now, I love chapter 5 because a certain stream begins to flow from Nehemiah's journey. His mission was to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem and to really put his city together, the city that he grew up in. But now he finds that the poor are now surrounding him and they're coming up to him saying, hey, surely you can talk to the guys that are really doing all these unjust things to us. So a stream begins to flow. Do you get what's happening? If he hadn't embarked on that journey, I don't think he would have helped these people. The slavery would have gone on for much, much longer than it had been. But because people started seeing him, the strength, the commitment, the perseverance, the resilience that he had, he said, you know what, I think we can trust this guy. If we go to him and cry before him and say, look, help us, we're enslaved, you'll be able to do something about it. And sure enough, he did. Because of his position, he was able to speak on their behalf and get them freed. The skills that God has given us, they are the ones that will sustain us. We might not see how right now, but whatever God, the little that God is asking you to do, will provide for you one way or another. You'll be shocked of the strings that will come out of it. Amazing, isn't it? But unless you begin that journey, I mean, why should I come to you? Because I can't see anything. That's just human nature, isn't it? But as you begin to develop yourself in that which God has called you to do, now I'm attracted to you all of a sudden because I know that you've got something. And you begin another business that you never thought you can begin. You know, because you can start something now. You never really wanted to sell cars, but so many people are coming to you about cars. Hey, why not? You never thought of starting a charity, but you've just seen that there's a thousand children being enslaved and you can help. So you put your hand into that as well. And so many other things come up. I love what starts to happen around Nehemiah at this point. Those that are enslaved begin to come to him and say, please help us. Speak to the masters. We've lost everything. We're mortgaging our houses and remortgaging them and giving them the, our, our fields. But the tax that we're paying seems to be not enough because they keep on increasing it. <laughs> <laughs> they keep on increasing the taxes. It just never ends. We're working harder and harder. I wonder who's going to change this system. <laughs> I wonder who's going to speak for us. I wonder who can talk to these guys and say, look, we're working too hard, man. 15 hours a day? It's too much. Is it you? 
Maybe it's me. <laughs> Let's go to chapter 6. We're just closing. Chapter 6 is further opposition from the rebuilding. This time from his closest inner circle. Amazing. Amazing. I'm just going to focus on two parts of chapter 6. Just two parts in chapter 6. Just two parts of chapter 6 which are very prophetic as we close. And this is something that makes this story very unique. And it's something that I want us to pray about as we finish this, this segment of this teaching. I'll read verse 9. It says, They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands would get too weak for the work. And they will not be completed. So those that were stoning them, those that were accusing them of doing so much so wrong, they were hoping that their hands would get weak for the job at hand. But I prayed, he said, now strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. I love that. He could have prayed so many things. He could have said, God, There could have been so many things that he could have said at that moment. But when the world is about to be complete, he prays for strength. He prays for strength. Couldn't turn back. Had no plan to turn back. Had no desire to turn back. All I need, God, is more strength. I need more strength, Father. Strengthen me, Father. And we'll close with verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat. We read about these guys three times now. My God, because of what they have done, remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. Even the prophets were intimidating them. So the war was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Let us please stand. Faith, walking with God. Faith is a journey. Faith is measured over time. Faith is a story. Faith is a testimony. Faith is your journey. Your faith is your journey with your God. A wonderful story of strength, perseverance, Boldness in a man called Nehemiah. What is your calling? What is your purpose? What is it that God has placed inside of you? That as we, as we trust God this month, the Do It series, it's time to embark on a journey. It's time to start the very things that God has told me to start. It's time to embark on this journey that God has said I should embark on.
For I know that you are with me, O oh God. I know that you will be with me, Heavenly Father. Even in times of opposition, O oh God, you will strengthen me. In times when many will laugh at me, O oh God, they will ridicule me, O oh God. They'll say I'm crazy. They'll say it makes no sense to start a business in Harlem. They'll say it doesn't make sense to start a ministry in Harlem. They'll say it makes no sense. It makes no sense. But I know what you have shown me, O oh God. I know the visions that you have given me. I know the messages that you have given me. I know what you have said, O oh God. And I'll not give up on your word, O oh God. I am who I am today because of who you have called me to be. Because of the burden that you have placed inside of me, Heavenly Father. I will embark on this journey, O oh God, trusting that you will be with me in every step of the way. You will never leave me nor forsake me, O oh God. You will never leave my side. Oh, that you've spoken over me, I will see it to completion. Nothing will be left behind. No stone will be left unturned, O oh God. You will silence my enemies, O oh God. You will silence them. Surely you will silence them. They will be defeated, O oh God. Verse 16 says, this is the part I love, it says, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Amen. May that be your story today. Yes. May your enemies be silenced. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. You prepare a table before me.